Philosophy. Descartes. Debate. The Mepropod. 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 The awesomest discussion podcast in the history of the human species. Oh, yeah! Let me tell you of an interview with an old man emu. He's got a beak and feathers and things, but the poor old fella ain't got no wings. Aren't you jealous of the wedge-tailed eagle? I'm better to da 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 Well, the eagle's flying round and round to keep my two feet firmly on the ground. Now, I can't fly, but I'm telling you, I can run the pants of a kangaroo. But da da He can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can run the pants of a kangaroo. All right, in that case, since you're here and good, welcome to the Mep Report number 144, November 30th, 2015, the post-Thanksgiving, pre-Christmas, holiday season edition. What is up, everyone out there? I hope everyone is doing well, and uh, yeah, I hope uh, that my two compatriots, Russ and Story, are doing well after uh, Thanksgiving. I know that Story, as usual, uh, indulged in a great deal of turkey. Um, that's, that's, that's his right. thing to do. Lots of, yes. uh, lots of turkey and, and no. I imagine meat sauce. I made it, I made it, uh, <laughs> what, 19 straight years with no tofurkey. Still have never had tofurkey. <laughs> what is your normal Thanksgiving outfit? I know that this is like Russ's favorite holiday, so I, I know that, but like, what is, what do you normally eat? Like, what sorts of things do you eat on Thanksgiving? You gotta remember my relationship with food. No, I know. That's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> food is not, like, you know, what I live for, unlike most of the humans that seem to occupy this place. Uh, I I enjoy mashed potatoes. I like corn. Okay. I like pretty much everything that's on the side, you know? Like, that's... Cranberry that's sauce? That's really all I ever want anyone to bring me anyway, is you can, you can bring what's on the side like at, at banquets when vegetarians go to banquets they have these amazing vegetarian side dishes and then you tell them you're a vegetarian and they bring you like a plate of shredded squash and i'm like nobody eats this i don't want this can i have they have potatoes on their plate those look really good can I no have those are only meat like, eaters side no. dishes yeah that's no. the potatoes on the other side of the meat ampersand <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, somehow it would like that would not compute. You wouldn't be able to digest it properly if it was on a meat eater's plate. Um, it is true, by the way, that why is it you think that vegetarian dishes so often involve shredding of some kind? It's just like have shredded lettuce or shredded. Le- I mean, I, I don't know, but it does seem like they're they're, they're yeah, I, they apparently think that you don't really digest food very well. So they well, the biggest sure problem, which is something that you know. I'm not sure if we've talked about it on a show before, but I've definitely talked about it with lots of people, is that people try to make all of the possible alternative ways of eating all in the same meal just to get it out of the way. So the vegetarian meal is also always vegan and kosher and halal and like for people who only <laughs> eat dead things that dropped out of trees by themselves and, you know, for people on massive diets and no gluten, you know, so. So basically just so walnuts. Just like knock it all walnuts, out. Walnuts, basically. The <laughs> right. They're like a shredded skin of walnut. Well, now walnuts could be a peanut allergy. Oh, right, right, right. Not right. allergy, tree nuts, nothing like that. Okay. So it's basically just shredded skin of, swa- of squash that's not cooked because, you know, they might be raw also. So you, you just try to knock it all out. Yeah, we had a we had a dinner here, and we had one of my close friends who lives in L.A. is a, a tree nut, severe tree nut allergy, will die person, and uh, he's fond of telling stories of his father, who was, I believe, 
a biochemist um, feeding him small amounts of tree nuts uh, <laughs> intentionally as a kid to try to okay. break down his allergy. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. So he would feed him little tree nuts, and so then this kid the Stephen would get you know violently ill, and then they would just repeat <laughs> it over and over and over again because it'll work this was, time. <laughs> he was a lab rat for for much of his early life. <laughs> He's like. Do not look fondly on those times. Nice. One of my good oh. friends, he was criticizing his then girlfriend, this was many years ago, for um, not being an adventurous enough eater. And she had a similar level of like total anaphylactic allergy to all tree nuts and got her to try something with mole sauce, uh, which of course is made with, I think, pinions or some sort of nut, um, unbeknownst to him and unbeknownst to his girlfriend. And so they had like a 20 minute argument about mole sauce at the restaurant. And then she like started to swell up and choke and had to be rushed to the hospital from the meal. And in, in that case, though, I think she really felt super vindicated as she was swelling up and choking. Oh, yeah. So, it's like, if I live through God. that, then you will Do you survive? Yeah. I mean, it's in that those cases where, like, I feel like people's bodies are definitely on their side of the argument. Yeah. It's like, even if it wasn't going to be bad, you're like, you better have a really serious, inflammatory response to whatever's happening because I want to be right at the end of this argument. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, and in fairness, mole sauce is foul. So I, I would think it's it's honestly it's a kind of sauce which is designed to re- sort of it feels it tastes like chocolate and it Isn't exists it made on savory. I don't know, but it exists on savory meals. So I it's very odd. It's it? just like I, is that what it? Because I don't know. It like has some kind of bizarre okay. cocoa taste, but I do not like mole sauce. And apparently there was. Some sort of chocolate is it okay? Because I've heard that there's like some subset of the population that, that and apparently I belong to this, that I'm certainly not allergic to it. I just don't like it at all. So it just and some people are like, what? It's delicious. It's like cilantro is in the same category of fu- of sauces that a lot of people that some people are like, oh, cilantro is amazing. And there's a subset of the population that there there. I guess there's some neutral folks about it. But there are a lot of people who really dislike cilantro, like the tipping point from this is neutral to, oh, my God, I hate this with the white hot intensity of a thousand suns. There's a pretty very thin line to get to that tipping point. And so, you know, and you're you're like that, Greg. I mean, you don't have as far as I know, the severe food allergies, but you definitely have your biases in terms of like calling tomatoes the larval fruit or whatever your <laughs> that, name that's for your, it is. That's your hero George Carlin's uh, thing. But yes, I, that is true. That and um, and definitely, well, tomatoes are odd because I like tomato sauces and ketchups and stuff. I just don't like the actual You just fruit. don't want to look at them. Yeah, well, no, it, it's a texture <laughs> thing. I've talked about this before. The raisins thing, I mean, my Twitch chat is, you know, has a fun time, you know, sometimes just making fun of me with the whole raisins business because I've, you know, cinnamon buns plus turds, as I've often called them. Like, why would you ruin the cinnamon bun with some actual turds? That is literally a screening question anytime I order a cinnamon roll anywhere in America because I've been burned too many times. I'm like, you don't have raisins in them, do you? Yes. Every single time. See? Every single time. And sometimes I get these funny looks from people like, who would who would murder a cinnamon roll like that? And right. Like, See, those are God's I'm people, just, those people. It's just a precaution. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. just a precaution. It's necessary. That's uh, it. You guys know my raisin horror story, right? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. Oh, uh, I mean, it's a pretty short story. I was a kid uh, living at home. I pulled out a box of Raisin Bran. These were back oh, in the yes. halcyon days when I yes. used to eat cereal, which I've, was very You long and I had the same experience. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, and then I poured the bowl of Raisin Bran or the box into a bowl, and out came a little bit of Raisin Bran and about a billion ants. Oh, and God. I was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> it was yep. 
It was straight out of night. It was nightmare fuel. Like it was, but it actually happened that one time. And yep. so I was like, yeah, I could do without raisins for the rest of my life. That's fine. Thanks. Yep. Bye. Yep. That's it. I remember uh, this. This is why we're friends, uh, you guys and me, because we, we both, we, we sort of have these common elements of nightmare fuel. I No, it's, it's so true. And the thing about it is, and I've, I've never understood this part. And maybe this is sort of uh, this, I think maybe get back, gets back to what we were just talking about in terms of like, let's default to the lowest common denominator just in case so that, you know, like on the vegetarian side but the sort of positive corollary of that it seems to me is if you know that everybody like if there's a venn diagram right and there's people who like cinnamon buns and then there's people who like raisins like everybody is in the circle of everyone who likes cinnamon buns everyone who's in that circle if they also happen to like raisins they won't stop liking the cinnamon bun because it doesn't have raisins right i mean they're still going to be like oh maybe some raisins would make this even better but i still like the cinnamon bun but they're not going to be like wow the absence of raisins makes this bun disgusting right whereas if you add raisins to the cinnamon bun you have made for an enormous subset of the population the let's call them the smarter half um, just absolutely <laughs> horrified at the taste of the cinnamon bun, which now has turds in it. So I just don't understand why you would take the risk. I don't. I don't know, Greg. I, I'm pretty sure that the saying "the proof is in the pudding" uh, explicitly refers to raisins. That that's like what you're looking for in the pudding is the is, raisins. Is that... Like, is that is the proof is is this a raisin pudding or is it a non-raisin pudding? Well, and I like, would you know, also posit. Yes. <laughs> that anyone who likes raisins can just carry a box of them around and just throw right, them into yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly. not like the raisin being cooked in. Like raisins, literally, like one of the defining traits of raisins is that they are incapable of changing their texture for love <laughs> nor money. Like, right. there's no, there's no changing a raisin. Like cooking it into the cinnamon roll, you could cook it for thirty years. The raisin is still going to be the same. Right. Hard how do, how do they go bad? Like, what is a raisin there. that goes bad? Does right. it go back to being a grape? No, it like so just, becomes more wrinkled and dry and worse like how could it just carry one of those convenient yeah. little boxes that the california raisins told us about in the 80s and like have done with it just throw it onto whatever you want just keep it on your plate oh that is so that is so 100 true like i mean and that way everyone's happy you know and, and no one has to feel like they're saying you could be like ah now this you know this delicious cinnamon bun you're like i let me just throw some turds in here and you're good to go like i mean and, and no one else has to you know feel sort of like affected by whatever bizarre food habits you have now just because nobody is going to in the context of this conversation i'm going to play the raisins advocate for a second and um so the california raisins which you brought up that seems to me like a vehicle to like transmit 70s soul music to like a bunch of children in the 80s like right without having right. to know the bands sure. they would just sing through raisins that's got to be some kind of positive effect there. Well, well, it's just propaganda, right? No one would like raisins <laughs> without the California raisins, exactly. right? It's a marketing genius. It's exactly. like you could they could have been the California slugs and people would be like, "Well, I've never had dried slugs, but like how bad could they be that, you know, I'm dancing along to the dried slugs." So That's exactly right. And and the other thing is that I I find that and you guys will appreciate this. The people who learn soul music through the California Raisin commercials, to my mind, fall into the same category as people who like song medleys. And those are strange people. Do you know what I mean? The people who are like, I really want to hear the first 10 seconds of a song. I don't want to hear the rest of it. That's all. They don't get any of the rest of it. They don't get the verse. They don't get it. They just get, you know, I heard it through the grapevine and dancing raisins. And then it comes to an end. And that's all they know of the song. And, you know, you end up being like my daughter when she was three, singing the same, you know, snap 
snatches of five seconds of songs over and over again, you're like, in the name of God, would you please go to verse two? And like, they don't have that, you know, they don't have that connection. So I, I feel like they have only successfully managed to get people to like excerpts of things, not not the actual. So you're saying that raisins are pretty much for the consumption of people who like like pop culture snippets and not real food and exactly they live and it's on like commercial jingles yeah and, and snippets is a good way for way to put it you know because how many times like if you listened i don't know about you guys but if i'm listening to a song in a medley and i'm like yes oh this is so cool i'm really enjoy oh god don't you feel disappointed when they go to the other song and you're like oh god why why did we go from there to like uh i don't know jingle bell rock like i was really enjoying this little christmas snippet and then i oh god you know like i want to hear the whole song man i don't want to like have you cut to the next 10 seconds because you're add and you can't figure out how to like arrange a song that lasts for longer than 10 seconds without a new one being added so yeah i you know you know i find and i feel like and i mean this is not revolutionary what i'm about to say at all but like clearly as a society we're all becoming kind of add like we're being conditioned to be add sure uh by the mass media, and I wonder because my version Wait, of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> were you guys talking about? <laughs> Forget. Uh-huh. Um, my version of it is that I can't ever consume just one thing at a time. I get bored incredibly easily. So if I want to watch like you know a really good prize fight on HBO, which I really am interested in and watching. I also have my iPad where I'm reading articles on Twitter and at the same time like checking the status of, you know, Star Wars card trader trades on my <laughs> phone. And I'm doing them all at the same time <laughs> and like fully engrossed and thinking about cross things while I'm doing the other things. But if I'm just doing one, I just feel like I'm a waste of human skin, even if all three of the activities are equally like not useful to society. <laughs> like, Do you think the MEP report may in some way have contributed to your desire for cross-genre pollination at all times? Is that is that possible that our inability to maintain consistency with a single topic well, has meant that you want to be, you know, telling jokes about six things at once? Well, I think moreover, like, it was the inception of the MEP report was us just playing video games online and chatting with each other, like, right. over the video games. So we were doing two things at once, and I found that, like, sufficiently engaging for my attention. I was like, perfect. <laughs> Let's be funny why... and shoot critters at the same time. <laughs> This is why I like reading so much is because I think reading is maybe the only activity that forces me to focus on one thing. I mean, I strive to only focus on one thing at a time because I notice the same trend and I feel like it degrades my ability to be good at any of those things. Um, I'm not a particularly awesome multitasker, but reading is something that I just like I cannot have. I'm one of those people who cannot have any noise or anything else going on when I'm reading. And I'm a very slow reader for someone who likes to read a lot. So um, I get very immersed and very absorbed. And I think I think I really appreciate that about reading that it's like something sufficiently immersive that I'm literally only doing one activity and kind of drowning out all other thoughts. Interesting. I find that I tend to I'm probably I'm a very fast reader, but I find that I do like to be Reading is something that I don't usually do as background. I mean, I'm not usually, you know, watching a football game. Now, grading, <laughs> especially if I'm grading exams, that that I'm all about grading the background. Grading uses up about 3% of grades. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that's, exactly. that. I mean, let's just be clear. I, uh, well, especially especially exams. Like like papers, I do have to focus more. I mean, you know, exams are kind of, you know, like, I mean, it's not a mod. It doesn't isn't, occupy a lot of my Isn't some of it, so. though, like a self-defense mechanism? Like, if you really gave 100% of your attention to grading, then you would start putting your fist through a wall at times. You'd be like, no. Yeah. Oh, this is a wrong conjugation, you <laughs> moron. No, I, 
Although I certainly do knew, I do know, uh, you know, professors who are frankly a little bit too invested in that and get sort of caught up in like every minute mistake just sort of hurts them on a visceral level. And it just, you know, they're it, trying too hard at their grading. It's like a raisin in their cinnamon bun of grading. It's like everyone, they're like, why? Why did this happen? Yeah, no, but it's, but it's true though that I do like, I read quickly, but I do for most of my reading, I do like to be immersed. And you guys may remember some shows ago, we were talking about the whole immersion thing and how I don't necessarily like the sort of movie immersion type of stuff um, but I definitely enjoy reading immersion and I don't know if that's because I'm just more comfortable in my own imagination and I don't like being sucked into the very powerful imagination of someone else if that makes any sense I don't know if that's what it is but definitely I like I'm with you story about wanting to have the reading focus even if I read much faster yeah. when I'm doing that I don't know yeah I don't know I mean I you know I think it's I just think it's important to have some time in our day, some activity that gets us more into um, a singular focus. And, you know, it's also good to have activities that sort of spur other things. I mean, I've, I, as I think most people do, find the shower to be an especially good place to, like, think about, you know, sort of idle drifting thoughts that end up leading to certain inspirations or other things, you know. Mm -hmm. So yep. in some ways, it's good to have things that or even there's sort of zero things we're focusing on because they're so rote that they inspire more creative thinking. Whereas if you're constantly filling yourself up with two to five stimuli, then I think it gets hard to be particularly creative, which is why Russ is a very uncreative person in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I have a hard time with that whole, that whole genre of thing. Yeah. Um, I found that the improv is a really interesting case study in terms of what you're doing with your brain while it's going on. Um, because... A, you're, you're, you know, you're in live interaction with real humans, which is already sort of an outlier in terms of things that people do these days. <laughs> um, B, you're like you're activating kind of several mechanisms at once because you're you have to listen to what's going on in the scenes. So you know the characters' names, you know their relationships, so that you can incorporate them if you want to bring them back later. But at the same time, literally at the same exact time, you're also thinking of ideas for what could I edit this towards? What could the next scene be? And Sometimes, I mean, if you if you concentrate too hard on it, you'll kind of break yourself. You just kind of have to like sink into it and let it happen with the A mechanism and the B mechanism are working together. And then it's even, and that's all on the sideline. And then you're on stage and you're doing, you know, one extra thing, which is, you know, you're working on space work and figuring out, you know, what the audience is giving you and what they're not giving you. Um, figuring out timing, anticipating edits from your teammates, and also figuring out, like, do I need to bring this character back? What is the behavior of this character? Like, and I, I, I struggle in trying to figure out, like, how to prepare for this, as if you could, you know, prepare for an improv show. Um, but, like, what, what do you do in your own life to, to activate your brain in this way? And so far, all I do is just kind of, like, wiggle my fingers and toes and like do weird weirdo <laughs> calisthenics and like just try to activate my body because i've probably been sitting and playing video games like before too long before it but uh yeah it's a very it's a very unique uh experience in terms of attention and how you're allocating it well i mean it occurs to me uh, this is actually you guys will appreciate this because both of you uh were kind enough to um speak to my speech class about uh, preparation for debate rounds and uh they actually just had their first one today um before oh, cool. before i started here um which went which went great and um <coughs> did they use my tactics of disregarding things that they didn't understand or didn't hear and making fun of the opponents and like all the the dirty tricks i was throwing in there in yeah the the giving the, them good advice the the dirt in the eye thing was particularly effective that 
that was they they really kind of got they they were scrabbling on the ground looking for dirt for a while, which was distracting in its own way. Um, no, but like, but you guys do. I mean, again, I'm very appreciative you guys did a great job with them. But um, it definitely, as I was watching them go through this, even the modified form, because for those of people who don't know what I'm talking about, so I have a speech class this semester, and I brought in both Russ and Story, uh, shockingly, to, as debate experts. I don't know why I would do that. Um, to uh, talk to them about aspects of um, speaking. In Russ's case, he talked to them about a lot of interesting stuff, actually, about not just opposition philosophies, but about um, about sort of kinesthetic sense and about, like, sort of feeling what your body is feeling and kind of making that shape the points that you give and really cool stuff. And Story was able to talk to them about case construction and sort of points that he developed and Story, the talking head on my laptop, was going from group to group, like, helping each group develop a case <laughs> and stuff. And it was, it was fun. Um, so as I was watching them go... It was three people on each side um, for this modified form of debate that we did uh, that I created. Um, it was a lot of fun. They were having a great time. They were really enjoying it. The audience too. Everybody was enjoying the whole pounding on the table to clap thing. They thought that was they thought that was fun. Um, Always a crowd pleaser. They love that. They love the point of information stuff. But it occurred to me how, one of the reasons that probably we all like debate has the, is that it sort of touches all of it pushes all those buttons like for story and myself there's an immersion there i think where you really are sort of drawn into the the particular topic and the sort of the nuances of how to debate it and address it and the sort of wonderfulness of working with a team that we all love and all that kind of stuff but for us i mean it is the ultimate example of multitasking you've got to be fully present in what you're saying but you've also got to be anticipating arguments setting them up for the future thinking about what other people might say kind of constructing if you're doing a response speech if you're doing a leader of opposition speech or a member of government speech and you're responding to a speech before you're thinking not only of reconstructing your case or you know rather the uh re deconstructing the case before you the speech before you but of reconstructing your own case and so like you know there's a lot of multitasking going on in debate while also being immersive and it struck me that was one of the things that was so fun about watching them do it is that they were they were all clearly enjoying sort of getting into it. They all had some, you know, organizational issues and, and the flow was a mess and all that stuff. But I mean, you know, this is their first sort of experience with it. So that was fine. I expected that. But it was fun to sort of watch them get into it. And maybe that's why it sort of appealed, one of the many reasons that it appealed to us for different reasons. It's got both multitasking and immersion, right? Like as, as part of the whole experience. So, Yeah. I think debate can do that for, for all of us. He said, more than Toastmasters. And that's why I took... No, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I'm not take that. that. <laughs> why did you come I, back for one, Toastmasters? Take, take the case that debate is actually terrible for you because... No, I'm, I'm not <laughs> <laughs> Right. There's that thing where everybody, when they hear you're a debater, they're like, every time this happens where I talk about that I met Clea and my wife in debate, immediately the reaction from people is just kind of like, oh, yeah. It's like, well, so you guys must have lots of great arguments. I'm like, hardy har har, because debate is about debaters are incapable of having conversations that don't lead to an argument. That's that's yeah. what we're all about. I often I think... wonder, like, if you met in a bar, like, am I supposed to take that to like, oh, I bet you guys have a lot of alcoholism in your family. Like, am I to assume that if you, you met could, in the normal way? You would probably ways... be correct in saying that, but it, yeah, it's not a well-taken point. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they don't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to hear about it. <laughs> it would be oh. accurate, You know, but like, why is that the assumption? Like, the assumption is like, debate in equals instantaneous argument on every topic ever. Like, I mean, I, what? That's, no. 
it's it's called it's we have intellectual discussions you know making a joke and making it accessible greg like when i used to travel nationally on a high school team and we would get on the airplane and i would have a trophy and they would say oh what did you win that doing and i'd say debating and then like literally 80 percent of people on planes i don't know why it was just some something about the magnetism of planes 80 percent of people on planes would immediately say no you didn't and the first like five oh, times i was like yeah. no i actually oh Oh, I see. And then after like the third flight, then you just hit them with a trophy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, I like to think that all these people they learn their debate skills from that Monty Python sketch about arguing. And if that's the case, that's all right with me. They're just like, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. This is just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. (laughs) Oh God, that's a great skit. It is true. It's like it's it's I don't know the assumptions that what goes into it is just disagreeing. You know. Yeah, if you said that you met her playing baseball, though, they would like probably tell you a story about Yankee Stadium, and it's not like because they think that you met at Yankee Stadium. Well, they would just yell at you. They would go safe. (laughs) (laughs) Why? (laughs) I guess you didn't strike out with her, huh? Who's with me? No, they totally would do that. Oh, that's good. That's I'm gonna use that. You're out of here. Oh man! I mean, I just—they just come up with a non sequitur. They're like, "Well, I guess you didn't have to have the infield fly rule." Then you just look at them and they're like, "Okay, I guess that maybe not." I've been waiting to use that infield fly reference for years. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody understand it, please. You're like, no, you were occupying two bases at once, and then the ball went up, (laughs) and then you advanced at your own risk. I I don't (laughs) don't, 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 know. Oh, actually, that almost works. Uh, that is kind of uh, what happened. Yeah, you're on second base and you advance at your own risk, and then the better. Yeah. Anyway, mm. sorry. Go yes. on. <laughs> well, there. I mean, we, we didn't invent right. baseball as relationship analogies. Like that's, that's happened. True. That's Touché. happened before. Yeah. Um, it usually involve infield fly. <laughs> it's more complex. Uh, I was just gonna say. I think the best argument against debate as an activity is Ted Cruz. I think that's basically oh, the, the well. argument to make. Yeah, I'd say it's good at what he does, and what he does is, you know, dangerous to the human race. So, again, I I apologize that I could not defeat him when I had a chance. You debated him. I've I've told this story before. Yes, I I debated him. I don't remember this story. Yeah, I I debated him at the World Championships at Princeton, and and an in round, and it was very early on in my career. It was mid nineties. He was in Harvard Law already. Uh, he was just as much of a smart, so wait, self-satisfied so he, little jackass. As so he, he debated and, four years at Princeton, and then he was debating for Harvard Law afterward? Yep. Uh, he deba- I don't know whether he was at Princeton four years, because that was technically before my time. Like he was, He's a little older than I am, so he's a couple years older. But yeah, something like that. Because um, remember, I didn't really start debating until my senior year of college, so I, I was kind of a late entrant. Um, but he was a year or two ahead of me in school, and so... Um, yeah, he, he, so he may have debated three years and then debate one year at Princeton. I don't remember exactly how it worked, but it was something like that. Um, was he like a big deal at the time? Was he a known quantity? Yes, he definitely was. Um, and I mean, you know, listen, he and, and David and uh, Damon Panton, who was his, uh, his debate partner were, you know, he was very good at what he did. He, for a long time, I used to use his point of information that he gave during a round that I saw at Worlds as like an example of one of the best points of information responses I've ever seen. Now, I haven't done that because it's like telling people, you know, so here's this awesome thing that Voldemort did when he was 10. You know, like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. But like, I, uh, but I mean, there I could, are plenty I of characters in the Harry Potter universe who do that. Yeah, yes, there yeah, is like, I, Tom Riddle, young Tom Riddle, I know I shouldn't talk about it. He had such talent at the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
to, to Snape shouldn't be trusted. Wait, uh, no, I like. I mean, yeah, like I, I, and I've, I couldn't, you know, I lost to him. It was my first ever world championship, and I was, I was still but young and callow, and I had not, I was not yet, I had not learned, you know, I hadn't gained my skill, I didn't have my power yet. If you'd so, won at that time, you might have stopped him from his senatorial aspirations. That's what I mean. I felt like I didn't strangle I him in the you, crib. Greg. I could have taken yeah. him out, you know, while I had a chance, but. Um, but the thing is, I mean, the funny thing is when I tell people about that, I mean, you know, he was just as much of a self-satisfied little elitist jackass as he is now. He doesn't, you know, and he was, it's everything that has been said about him is true. He was, you know, people knew about him and they tended to hate him because he was, he's a hateable, dislikable person. And that's why he's the most, you know, disliked man in the Senate. And he got that way after a month. He's a very, and that's why I laugh when people are talking about, you know, and we have to be, don't underestimate him because he's very intelligent. Here's what you need to know about Ted Cruz. Number one, he's not nearly as smart as he thinks he is. Number two, he will get obliterated in a general election because he is the most viscerally dislikable person you've ever met. You want to punch him in the face after about an hour just watching him. And that's, that's going to be the reaction that people are going to have to him. He is not going to win an election. People do not like him. Um, and that's that's the thing. Now, he may appeal enough to the sort of evangelicals who don't have a chance to see him up close and personal and gain the same visceral dislike everyone else has of him that uh, he may, you know, end up getting up there and end up winning a nomination, although I doubt it. And if he does, he will sit on stage and people will go, wow, your unfavorable numbers should be at 90 percent and they will never vote for him. He's also ugly, which, like it or not, the, uh, you know, sub superficiality of American politics means we have nothing to worry about. Well, I don't know. He could pull a uh, Kevin Spacey and get in as uh, Trump's vice president and then have Trump set up in some Trumpy scandal and then nah. become the president without any votes being cast in his favor. I'd be more worried about that if it weren't for the fact that both Trump and Cruz have egos far too large to be in the same room with each other. I mean, like, there's no well, chance. They've been, like, teaming up. They've been, like, they were doing events they were like co-campaigning at events together to set each other up as yeah. as vice presidential picks for each other. You know, I I will say this though. I kind of think this is the year of unlikability. I I just think that, you know, the president's he sets a that, new standard. The people, no, but the people that are out there, I mean, Hillary is probably the most unlikable democrat in like modern history. Well, the bar um, the bar is pretty high. Like Barack Obama is genuinely like very likable, you know, as a candidate. So right. it's it's no one's going to out likable Obama. In but this the numbers, yeah. the, the the Hillary numbers don't bear that out. You know, I mean, they from back in the '90s they did. They don't bear that out now. She's very popular with Democrats. Cruz isn't even popular among lots of Republicans. And, you know, his his unfavorable numbers are pretty unimpressive for Republicans, let alone anything else. Same problem with Trump, by the way. I, it, at a certain point, I feel like like the Republican national election, the Republican primary has become like the NFC East of politics in that someone's got to win. And I don't really see how any one of them will win. But so somehow altogether, someone's got to default in, which means probably like George Pataki out of nowhere will will emerge as like somehow the candidate because oh, someone's got to win. Yeah. I just saw recently, you just reminded me of this, that um, I was watching RT, which I am uh, prone to do at times, which is the Russia Today, Russian state news run alternative news channel. <laughs> um, and they, you know, among other uh, kind of celebrities past their prime, they have Larry King, who does his own interview show on RT. He has they a show have... on Russia Today? Yep. Um, somewhere. Yeah, they just they just trot out the, the corpse of Larry King and he wow. pretends to interview people. Um and then they also have uh, Jesse Ventura, who used to be, I guess, on MSNBC, or he was a correspondent on one of the, the cable networks, and now he does an RT show. And he had 
Oh, God, what was his name? He's a Fox News correspondent. He's a judge. Is it Napolitano? I forget Yeah, I think so. the name. He's yeah. like a famous libertarian character that is a, a third-party guy, and he hates both parties and was on Fox to criticize the left but just as easily criticizes most of the, the mainstream conservative candidates. And they were having such a love fest that in the midst of this interview – um, Jesse Ventura was convinced that he should run for president as a third candidate once like the only caveat was like if Rand Paul or Bernie Sanders don't win their relative primary elections because he sees them as the outsider candidates then like he would have to come in and swoop everyone to safety as the uh, the independent uh, libertarian candidate who would uh, win point zero 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 one percent from Jill Stein like that's that's what he would ultimately win I don't know uh. I, there's a precedent for actors in the movie Predator to do really well in political <laughs> That's elections. <laughs> That's true. We have to be concerned about other... Was Forrest Whitaker? Because that would be awesome. Like, did, who, do, who else was in Predator that could actually um, become a political The famous predator? bit was Carl Weathers, who was also played Carl Apollo Carl Weathers, Creed. yeah. Like, he had a, a Saturday Night Live sketch about elect me the governor because you elected two other governors from this movie. Oh, so I never I saw that the next That's guy. so funny. Action yeah. Jackson. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Action Jackson. And then there was that... Um, Gosh, there was that other actor, but yeah, he wasn't. I guess he's not prominent enough to be a governor slash presidential candidate. That's interesting. I so this I'm intrigued by this Russia Today thing because for some reason you're describing like Jesse Ventura and Larry King, and I'm starting to get a very different sense than what I would imagine from hearing Russia Today. Like, is this like Al Jazeera or like BBC like well, World News yeah, it's, or like it's what? Just like Al Jazeera, and in fact, there was a little tiff between RT and Al Jazeera over who was more biased on behalf of whom. Like <laughs> Al Jazeera accused RT of being, you know, of never being able to criticize the Russian state, which they don't because they're based in Russia and they're funded by it. And then RT accused Al Jazeera of being funded by the American like military campaign in Qatar and like reporting from that perspective. Um, so, th you know, Knowing, like everyone has their biases, but sometimes it's important to watch things where you know what the bias is to see what the propaganda wavelength is on like a given day. Like you get good information, especially their coverage of of American politics and American uh, social and political events is great because they're super critical of it. They don't, they don't, they can take the gloves off. Like they can be as critical as they want, and often they're accurate in their reporting. They just never turn that lens back on like Vladimir Putin or in the Ukraine situation or Egypt or you know Syria or any of that stuff. But so they're basically but, Edward Snowden, is what you're telling me. Like they can be super critical until the point when you realize that they're hanging out with human rights, uh, you know, abusers like to a fairly well, and then they're like, well, <clears throat> yes, but anyway, back to the United States mistakes and errors and the you know the stuff. Yeah. The other right. thing, though, is that they are like the number one most viral internet popular news clip station. Like they've mastered the use of making clips, putting them out on the internet. They have really? billions, billions of YouTube clip views, like way more than any mainstream American news channel. Um, they're, they're winning that war, like for sure. Um, and yeah, and they've used the money that they have to hire a bunch of, uh, you know, somewhat credible out of their prime kind of uh, pundits to, to be on Russia today. Nice. So what, so I guess the real question has to be, can you uh, like can you be hired as an out of your prime even though you haven't arrived at your prime yet an out of your prime person like because i think i think this uh, needs to happen they already have their own version of a john stewart and he's nobody that anyone's ever heard of and he's not funny at all but they try they try real hard for whatever <laughs> but, you're, but you're funny neither john nor stewart however <laughs> he's he is their john, john stewart 
Oliver, nor John Stewart, nor Colbert, nor anything of that level. But he does try to make for funny news bits about the the capitalist state and you know the 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 shrinking ability of of uh, the democratic probability in America. But he's not funny at all. He's terrible. Why are we not immediately applying to be on here? Story, like, up to the point, like, I mean, Story obviously has got massive Russian cred, you know, and experience and knowledge. And, and you know, I mean, like, obviously, you have incredible alternative news cred, Russ, and being able to tie that together. Why have you guys, why have we not figured out a way to get ourselves, to get our show syndicated somehow on Russia Today? I can see so many examples uh, I mean, the Tonka truck thing, we get like, I mean, there's so many examples of cases that our stuff would perfectly sync up, I think, with the potential listening and audience. Look, I'm, not, today. I'm not saying that this is a terrible idea, but I am saying that it, this is no, you know, instant media. Like, this is a for real, like, massive like organization <laughs> that is not need to pay any attention to us. If I, it can, I don't if it can get 117-year-old Larry King, like, that's still way the fuck out of our We league. are more relevant at this point than 117-year-old Larry King. Let's be fair here like i mean and we're, and we're younger they can shape us we're malleable i mean larry king is please yeah, we you know we're malleable we can actually Speak lift our yourself. elbows off the table and I, lean I, backwards I, who's more seats. malleable than larry king his skin is putty like, <laughs> <laughs> you can just form different people shape, out of it richard nixon like, any way you want him yeah like, you can what? like uh smash his face against newsprint and then read it off his face <laughs> What? Yeah, but then lift him by his suspenders, <laughs> like on the show. The <laughs> Let's read the news off, Larry. <laughs> oh God, let's bounce him off the floor. Boring. Like, oh my God. Um, no, I, but I'm serious. Like, we we are we are perfectly suited for this. This is our this is our crew, man. Oh, I mean, and you know Max Kaiser, right? The like crazy former uh, hedge fund trader, financial analyst, who's like Louis <laughs> Benson, loves Bitcoin and is uh, a huge uh, kind of you viral. Fine. Yeah, but he's he's an RT guy, and he lives. I think he lives in Russia now, as many of their their pundits do. Oh well, uh, so we'd have to live in Russia. No, I mean, I don't, well, we, they definitely have RT America. They definitely have offices based in the U.S. because they have reporting that's done here. So I think, and and they're you know super in favor of uh like na- U.S. nationals, you know, talking smack against their own state. Like that's kind of what they're all so, about. So I mean, we're so yeah. So I mean, I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying they're. We should have done this, you know, five years ago when they were still called Russia Today and they weren't all cool RT people. Well, but they, you know, they hadn't risen to the level where we could really take notice of them yet. So I think now that they've now that they've gained fame and popularity, and we're on their radar. Right, I was gonna say now right. now they're in our wheelhouse. Is what yeah. happened. What is emu? You do emu show? <laughs> I don't understand. I'm so serious. I would love to be this sort of gadfly, you know, show that everyone's like, why are they there? And there could be all sort of like uncomfortable moments, like why are you associating with someone that you know refuses to be critical of Russia? And we could deny it and like point to like several examples where we've made fun of Vladimir Putin. And then you know, but like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They're not really as bad as when we make fun of like American politics. Like I mean, I could see so many examples of of ways that we could. You you know, beyond the show, beyond the network, and then spectacularly flame out in a way which would get us so many more fans down the road. I mean, this is a great... Why do we have to flame out? Why can't we just be an advocate for this alternative news source that happens to be controlled by the Kremlin? <laughs> happens to be controlled. <laughs> that just accidentally happens to be... Well, you'll know all of a sudden if we start being like, you know what I really like, guys? Cinnamon buns and raisins. And all of a sudden, like, there's a massive, like, raisin, like, you know, export coming out from Russia. And they're like, you know, you will not attack Russia again. 
that's German, but you know what I'm saying. Um, you know, like rate. If if things change in our coverage, then they can claim that we sold out. But I'd like to get to the position where we're able to be accused of selling out. I'd, I'd like to, you know, let's let's put a let's put Aim a, high, a Greg. let's put a press junket <laughs> together. We can do this. I would love that. I that's oh man, because that's exactly it. It's like the size of the organization. It's like how like I don't know if you guys this this may not connect to you at all, but. I have a number of writer friends now, and at least three of them have NPR shows. And I'm kind of like, what? Because like when I was a kid oh, yeah, growing up, like NPR was a big, like a huge deal. And so I was like, wait, what? And they're like, yeah, I have an NPR, you know, bit, and I do, I report for NPR, and I have an NPR show. And I'm like, you, but that, like, not we're not talking public access, right? Like local access, where you like get on right after like the Nazi sympathizer and before the, like the strange woman who like does the fortune telling down down in the village. Like you're talking about the actual NPR, right? National Public. Oh yeah, yeah. So like, I feel like we're in that position now. Like maybe Russia Today can be the thing where it sounds really impressive, and it probably is impressive, but somehow they they reach out for people like us. Like everybody writing for the Huffington Post, same thing. Like I feel like Huffington Post has become the law and order Broadway credit of writers. Like everyone is just like blah 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 and writes for the Huffington Post because everyone writes for the Huffington Post now. So I feel yeah, like because that's, you know, because nobody's I mean or very very few people are full time employed by Huffington Post. Right. And everyone else is a right. freelance writer whose thing showed up in the Huffington Post and that is now their top resume item. That's exactly it. Yeah. So I feel like that's what we need to do. I'm serious, guys. We could, we could, you know, we could really make a run at this. Like, you know, Russia Let's, today. Do we, do we still have the screen capture of that instant media feature of the MEP report where they were like, "These guys are destined for greatness." Yep. 2006. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long Russ, play. I charge you with putting together the clip show of every time that we have oh. Russia. Oh and God. Then you can you can cobble it all together as our demo tape for our team. And, we'll and it's like, just actually saying the word Russia. 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 <laughs> Oh, Russia, Russia, Russia. Russia. Oh, Russia. Oh, like guys you guys are Russia, Russia today, but we were Russia yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> You've tried present Russia. Have you tried past Russia? Oh my god! Russia before it was cool. <laughs> Sounds like the best use of my time ever. <laughs> Russia has always been cool. And then I'll probably do it. I'll just one day at like 4 a.m. I'll send you guys yeah, an email. Exactly. Like, here it is, guys. We the Russia it. MP3. Oh, Russia, 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 Russia. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing is like in the background is like Dr. Zhivago themes. It does everything is just like Russian themed. He's like, all right, I'm good to go. We can do it. Oh, mm -hmm. man. Set against the backdrop of a powerful landscape of Siberia are three ex debaters in. The MEP report, Russian <laughs> edition. <laughs> oh, I was about to start singing the. What the hell was the Dr. Vaca? Oh, yeah. Somewhere, my love. Yeah, I mean, while, while we're doing this, we may want to also have like a safety news network in mind um, if we're shooting for <laughs> Russian RT. Yeah, like, you so know, CNN. Dem Democracy Now. No, so smaller. <laughs> like, fucking way smaller. I think joking. Democracy Now. Or Democracy Pacifica now. Radio, which Does is I have, do you mean that I have to hang out with Senk Ugyur and, and those people? Does that have to do the Young Turks? They're on. Yeah. They do. Are they just internet, or they also do Democracy Now? I don't know. I thought they were at some point Democracy hey, Now. Hey, if we could get on the Young Turks, that would be terrible either, and that would be a perfect like kind of halfway point. Except then we'd have to cross the whole Turkey Russia hit each other barrier thing. That I no, we, we could report from the epicenter. <laughs> that would be perfect. That would be perfect. <laughs> right in there. We could be. Like we are coming to you live from the fighter jet, straddling the border of Russia yeah. and Turkey. Well, as we I give just quickly clip. do, and I told you so, and and World War. Yes, II. I Go noticed quick. that. I thought of you immediately. Actually, thank you. 
Um, I, I want to say, by the way, wait, what? Nothing. Yeah. Ha- what? Wait, 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 wait. You're just letting him off that easy because a couple of countries are mad at each other. Really? Well, I'm I'm not. I mean, I was it was mostly because I wanted to make a you know, terrible joke that wasn't really that relevant. Um, yes, we can go back to the part that, that Russ no, no, was no, not no, as no, right no. as he thought okay. he was. I specifically talked about the possibility of Turkey shooting down a Russian jet like a, couple, a month or two before it happened. And then it happened. Okay. And then and then the world... moved in a destroyer with any aircraft missiles right off the coast of Syria. And then and World War III. Wait. Just equipped and all the of its... And choice exists or does not exist. <laughs> <laughs> Russ is like, damn it. Damn it. Like, Sorry. Ru- Russ is like, how can I make this argument work without ending the world? There's got to be something. The escalation is happening, man. It's happening. <laughs> it's happening. I mean, the man. Pascal's wager on my side is infinite, right? Because either... Yeah. The discussion ends, or I, I get know. to keep telling if Russ, I told you so. If we're having a discussion, I'm still losing, is the, uh, right. the problem. Exactly. <laughs> I whip! That means there's infrastructure, the internet's up. I mean, man, yeah. like, all the way from New Orleans when, to L.A. If this podcast happens on a ham radio, then I get to tell you I told you so, though. Yeah, all exactly. Co- that's true. All, all conflict why I left is regional. a message for the aliens, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I, all conflict is regional. I, can, I think so you could make an argument that, um, as you guys know, one of the big, uh, most successful games that people have been playing over the last month or so has been Fallout 4. And it struck me that one of the things I think is so appealing for people about post-apocalyptic stuff, what's often been said is that, well, people sort of have these fears of sort of apocalyptic visions, and so they play through them. They sort of like, you know, wallow in them almost to sort of make them feel desensitized to it and not as afraid of it. I think another argument could be that people recognize, I'm knocking on wood furiously, incidentally, that... The apocalypse as such is not going to happen, certainly in one big, massive, all-at-one type of thing. And so people do Fallout 4 because they're actually like, they want an ersatz version of the real thing. Like, they're never actually going to wander around a irradiated landscape with a half-metallic German shepherd and a bizarre, like, metallic box called a Pip-Boy. So instead they have to, like, you know, pretend that they're doing it while listening to terrible retro music. You know, After like, being cryogenically frozen for 200 years or something and, like, waking up on your own and being like, I'm good. I can just get out of this myself. Thanks. Right. And where's my kid? Yeah. Like, no, exactly. It's, it's, you know, so I think, I think there may be actually something, um, there may be actually something. See, I actually see the apocalyptic obsession from the opposite perspective. I think that a lot of people find it desirable because it's a reset of things that like, it makes things matter in a way that they feel like their current lives don't matter. And so it, infuses a meaning that they feel like their lives will forever be without. Ah, uh, because they would then have so much it's significance under, wandering around that landscape, you mean? Yeah, well, even if it's under dire circumstances, and it's not necessarily because there's, like, only five people left, so math, like, they're 20% of the influence. <laughs> Although, I do think I do think there's a little bit of nihilism that comes with, you know, getting toward 10 billion people on the planet, but I think it's mostly not about that. I think it's mostly about the fact that most people feel like the greatest significance of their decisions will be whether to eat raisins in their cinnamon bun or not in their entire lives and so there's a certain amount of power and and realness that comes from the idea of a post-apocalyptic world i think i mean frankly if we if we want to go there i think this is a lot of why isis has attracted a lot of followers other than you know the family and relatives of everyone that the western you know influences have killed imperialistically but aside from that i think like that is a lot of the appeal is that they are sort of an openly 
pre-post-apocalyptic group of like, let's facilitate this. And that there's a lot of idea of, you know, a lot of appeal for people who are on the margins of their society saying, hey, you know, I don't have anything going on. I feel powerless. I don't feel like I have any influence. This is a place where really dramatic things are happening, really awful things, but really dramatic things that feel like they're significant decisions. You know, you make a good point, I think, about the idea that some people would prefer to make any kind of an impact, even a horrifically negative impact than zero impact. Like they would rather not live their life neutrally, right? They could either live their lives in a way that has this massive impact on society, possibly in a very negative way, or they can live their lives neutrally and do no harm and then be forgotten. I mean, that's sort of a, that's kind of a horrific variant on what we've often talked about, about leaving a mark and legacy and all the stuff that we've discussed here before. That's a kind of horrific variant of it, but it's interesting. I mean, and yes, maybe there's something to it because it is taking the powerless the the you know people who feel powerless and feel that they have no sort of say and impact and influence and telling them here you can have a say and an impact and an influence um you know the sort of the need for to be noticed to be taken you know yeah. paid attention to you know i think it also informs the mass shootings in the u.s i think that's a yep. very similar feeling it's a reaction to a frustration of feeling like there's no power so people create their own power even if it is like willfully because of the number of people who kill themselves right after like self feeding um but just to sort of have that experience of power i mean obviously i'm not advocating for any of this i just think that it's one of the byproducts of the malaise of our modern society yeah no i think that's very smart um you know one of the things that actually strikes me this is this is here here greg enters his uh, positive optimistic phase um, <laughs> i was gonna say i was like you're waiting, got to. you're waiting for it no yeah. i think the very positive optimistic side of it is what we were talking about sort of associated with things like debate or things like what we do on the show or frankly any of the stuff that we're involved in kind of on a day-to-day basis i would argue that you feel this way in your current work story and i know that russ feels this way even though technically improvisation is by its nature transient right i mean like you can capture it on video and all that, but like the feeling of being immediately creative in the moment and forming something that has this amazing impact, you can play videos of it and people can be like, wow, that was really cool. But to a certain extent, it never has quite the same impact and value as when you're actually producing it to begin with. Right, Russ? Is that like... In- indeed. Is that indeed. Okay. So what I would argue, though, is that in one of the things you can do then is you can pursue a life and a career in which you are perpetually making moments of that kind and by doing so you create an enormous legacy for yourself like in other words you produce a legacy through these series of transient moments like i had this discussion on uh, the other podcast i do speculate um with a group of people who are doing this thing called serial box publishing um and it basically is like serialized fiction so it's like you know you do a short story in a particular universe and then all of them are tied together to make this big large larger arc And uh, the people who were there, and there's a couple of fairly well-known authors who are involved with it, sort of make reference to themselves as showrunners. Like, you know, they're literally like the folks like in TV who are bringing together co-writers and are having them sort of in their kind of, you know, above the chessboard, like seeing how all the pieces play out. And one of the things that strikes me that that's doing is we pay so much attention to the people who produce the shows 
even if they're not the ones who get out front and center of these things. So like we revere Norman Lear, right? Because Norman Lear was this astonishing producer who created All in the Family and MASH and like all of these great shows. And people were like, wow, like this is this is amazing. Even though you couldn't point to it and go, but Norman Lear wrote this joke or made this character or did this thing. Same thing with Gene Roddenberry in Star Trek, right? Like he didn't like make like, oh, here's Captain Kirk. What he did was create this world within which people sort of played and did stuff. And so he is revered because of all of the different elements within that world that he made possible, if that makes well, sense. George George Lucas has the same qualities. Well, yeah, another, another he example. he created the world, a lot of people recognize that the best versions of those weren't his creation only, but they were because of a very talented crop of producers and sound designers and yeah, actors. Yeah, same, same and principle, although I would say that there, because he actually directed the films, it's a little bit more removed from it but like but you know like the producer credit as opposed to the director credit you know the one did who sort of makes these moments did he direct or did he really films? direct it okay that's fair enough mm-hmm. but you know what i'm saying like like that's so to me that's the thing that really that to me is one of the positive things people can take from it is like you can be a part of and produce all of these series of what seem like transient moments but if you look at it in the aggregate you're like damn like I had a massive impact on the world, you know, like, so I don't know. So maybe people, if they imagine things, well, listen, Hamlet says uh, there's nothing Empire, in the world, but Empire thinking Strikes makes it back, so, right? Directed so. by Irvin Kirshner. No, FYI. right. But I'm at Star Wars and Return uh-huh. of the Jedi was Lucas. Yes. Right? But mm-hmm. yes, the best exactly. one. And, and right now, exactly. Now, there's my point. And do people remember Irvin Kirshner? No. People remember George Lucas. Yeah. So, uh, you know. So I, th- I think that's, I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, people can feel like they can become part of something larger, even if they are not the ones constantly in front and like being the news. Like I, whoever made Russia Today, whose name I don't yet know, at some point I imagine I'll figure out and, and he may be revered once he hires us or she. So, you know. Yeah, but I just think that to do that, I mean, I think that's a very good point. I just think to do that, society has to actually be engaging people in community which is not really the direction of things right like you have to feel welcomed into something to feel like you're a part of something which i think if there is a thread that pulls together all of the terrorists in our society be there for isis or white supremacy or misogyny or any of the other movements that are out there it is probably that they don't feel included um in anything yeah well we've had this discussion before and i actually i agree with you wholeheartedly about the importance of community I don't agree entirely, though, that that's that we're heading away from that. I do think, in fact, that you see humans doing everything they can to create communities, often in online environments, um, where so that people are being drawn together in ways that you might be surprised about. Like, for example, uh, you may have heard that I'm sure Russ is. Well, I'm sure both of you have heard that um, Anonymous has basically said that they're now going after ISIS, and to which people were like, "Oh, whatever. Like, what are you actually going to do to them?" And then all of a sudden, like a bunch of their financial, uh, they they got nailed on a bunch of like financial aspects aspects and things that were shut down they had like and there was an argument that anonymous had affected almost 25 percent of isis's financial resources within about a week after declaring that they were going to do something like this now i don't know about you that to me is incredibly impressive and that is what a community that is formed of probably the vast vast majority of people that have never met each other and don't even know each other's real names i would suspect just by the definition of anonymous that people don't know who they actually are in real life right no they're all bill um, it's just their names are all bill yeah um bill. anonymous bill. actually one bill. guy in iowa no but like yeah. you know i feel like that that they've created these communities sort of separate from anything else and that to me is a very positive sort of thing i feel like people are moving that way in fact 
biggest bed of news, like my positive news for the week. Did you guys hear what Italy said they were going to do in response to uh, the attacks uh, in Europe? Did you guys hear what Italy said they were going to do? I did not. Italy has said they announced that this was an official parliamentary declaration, which was supported by the prime minister, etc., that for every euro that they spend on increased security. And they said, you know, they're like, well, you know, because people have been pushing them like you need to get same kind of business, you know, the same nativist BS, you know, like, well, you need to close the borders and you need to like immediately start, you know, blaming everything on brown people and all the stuff that we tend to jump to do for no reason whatsoever when these things happen. And mm -hmm. so Italy was like, well, for every euro that we spend on security, we will spend an equal amount, an equal amount of euros on culture. So we will spend an equal amount on cultural investment. We will spend an equal amount on artistic investment, on support of universities, on development of uh, technology that will make it easier for people to communicate with each other, especially in cultural venues, on museums, on concerts. So every security spending dollar will be matched by, or euro, will be matched by a cultural spending euro. Which I just think, now again, yes, the devil's in the details. What does that mean? I get it. Like, obviously, there's a lot of practical questions. But as an ideal, like as an established ideal, I don't know that you could have something much better than that. Like, because it makes equivalent what, I mean, frankly, security, as we all, I think, could agree, is much less important than culture. Because culture actually leads to greater security because it brings greater understanding instead of just killing people and claiming that's making you more secure. But community like connecting the idea of culture and security together to me is brilliant and i'm i'm very excited that italy chose to do this i think it's great yeah i, I, I what you got heard, russia today i heard that they were also they agreed uh, in a summit to drive their vespas around in solidarity a bunch <laughs> why you got the toe driving <laughs> the other way yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, like, I think that's, I think that's an intriguing development. Going back to the internet thing, I think that I would question, and this is, you know, not the first time we've had this debate, probably <laughs> this year on the map report, probably even this month. Um, but I would, I would question how satisfying or how fully satisfying an internet community, especially one that is overtly anonymous, uh, is going to be in the long run for people. I think, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the internet. I love Facebook. I know Russ joins me in loving Facebook in all ways. Um, so, you know, I love how it connects me with people who I otherwise would be less connected to. I obviously enjoy things like the opportunity to do this podcast with everyone. I think internet community is great. I do think that there are some pitfalls when the internet is expected to supplant all former aspects of community, though, which I think that all too often that is the increasing expectation. And I think, unsurprisingly, that still leads to a certain sense or feeling of isolation, especially for people who maybe have a harder time making friends in real life and don't ever get you know don't find the internet to be a bastion of places to connect with their friends but just find it to be a place where everyone else is having fun without them i totally totally agree and so much so that i'll even say this is one of the reasons that i'm not a big fan of the online classes all the time movement because i think what you do in a classroom setting when you are face to face in the same room has a profound effect that cannot be replicated through the use of webcams and podcasts and touch screens and all that so i 
I'm I'm with you on that score. Mm-hmm. However, what I think you may be undervaluing a little bit is how much these things do cross over. Um, so there are numerous, numerous examples of meetups of people who, you know, develop as a good example of this. So I, I think I told you guys that I started streaming for uh, casting a show once a week over on Twitch where I have my own channel for goodoldgames.com, which is a pretty well-known DRM-free site run by CD Projekt. They, they're the ones who did The Witcher 3, if anyone's heard of that. So, uh, and, and they have a Twitch channel, which is a good number of followers, and I do a, you know, story-focused show once a week. And they have a whole set of streamers. Oh, thanks. Largely, nah. yeah, ha, ha, yes. It's all featured on you. I, I all things. Right. Episode I really five is Luminaria. Today in the life of stories. So Luminaria. Why yes. do they keep trying to feed him spaghetti? Yes, my episode is Let called Shredded Squash. The calls. Yes. <laughs> yes. I really think that vegetarians should plant luminarias, shouldn't they? Yeah. No. Um. Yes. Like I. 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 Uh, I yes. No. Different Sorry. kind of. Different kind of story. Sorry, but um. Yeah. But uh. Yeah. So. So. But. This most of these streamers are European, so many of them are. Uh, you know, we have some from Poland, from Germany, from Lithuania, from Romania, like you know, so some mm-hmm. from England. A lot of Europeans, and I was one of the sort of new guard of American streamers that they brought on. God knows why they want us to mess up their perfectly functional channel, but they decided to bring some Americans on um, as well. So one of them is a former Australian who. Um, met his current girlfriend, who he now lives with, um, doing, he like became active in the Tesla effect, which is this <clears throat> video game community. And eventually he got brought on by them and became a video, their video effects supervisor for this game, the Tesla effect. Um, and so he ended up being brought to them and they brought him in from Australia on a, on a work visa, basically. Um, and while he was here, he got to know one of the people who was also active in that community and they fell in love and they moved in together. And now he lives in Washington, D.C. And I met both of them when they happened to be up in New York. Now, how, you know, in the face, you know, like went, had like, you know, had dinner with them and all of their very nice people. It was great. So I know them in a real sort of direct face to face sense because of my Internet connection with them. And does it happen on a regular basis? No, it doesn't, obviously, because they live in D.C. and I live up here. And I have not yet met, you know, some of the people out there that live in England or Poland or, you know, New Zealand. And I haven't flown down there yet or whatever. Like, I haven't met those people. But there's a good chance that many of those people I will meet in a face-to-face context at some point. So you're right that the internet cannot be all things to all people, and I don't think that it's a substitute for in-face, you know, in-person face-to-face conversations. <laughs> but I do think it can be a better sort of facilitator of that than you might be giving it credit for. Um, and that there is an urge for people to want to meet each other sort of face-to-face in real life. And really well. all that's missing is three-dimensional avatars that have, like, touch and smell. And I thought 3D Printers, yeah, yeah. That's and exactly so, right. and once you incorporate that into you know a more comprehensive multiverse, then really we can just finally live in our liquid stasis chambers and not have to worry about going outside. Into yes, the Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Oh, I have yeah, just once I 3D print Greg, I'm done with this show. I'm just gonna <laughs> hang out with 3D printed Greg. Here. How are you? Oh, Greg. <laughs> I don't it's like still raisins. Greg, oh, it's yeah. just his corporeal form is somewhere in a pod. God, I now think I'm that's how Larry my... King is operating. <laughs> actually, <laughs> it's like that's why. Oh, that's why he interviews Tupac every week because it's the holograms talking to each other. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I somehow I just had this image though of being made. Of that very weird plastic material that they make things in 3D printing out of, and like I just raisins. sort of 
Greg. Oh, God. See? See? <laughs> it explains so much. The raisins were actually taken from your vault of technology, it but is. it was a mistaken release. So, like, it came out way before its time, and that's why I hate it so much. It would it would explain quite a bit, including its tastelessness and everything else. I actually, my most recent short story called The Tower involves what exactly what you just described, Russ. Actually, it's odd that you should bring that up. And I wrote that story in a creative stream where I wrote a story and one of the streamers was, who's a musician set it to music, the guy that I met, and one of the uh, the other streamers who is an artist illustrated that story. So Ooh. see, that good old game's creative stream of three hours where I wrote a story which will be submitted to an anthology involves face-to-face contact. So there you go, looking and glass people. And by face-to-face, you mean like Skype, Skype face to Skype face? Well, I don't want to give away the story, but I mean, you know, you have to read it for yourself or listen to it or buy my stuff. Really, which is what this comes down to. So if you purchase my... I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... So see, I think I think you're right that the internet cannot solve all things, but I do think that the internet actually has the potential to uh, set us up for further community and conversations. So I think that's possible. I disagree. I don't think conversations are possible on the internet. Yeah, seriously. Are you a debater? Player left. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of that, uh, you know, it's funny because we've just about reached the end of an hour, gentlemen. So uh, once again, um, you have listened to an hour of your time. Your precious face-to-face time has been used up listening to our virtual personas, which we appreciate. And uh, if you would like to meet any of us in real life, um, perhaps you could do that or by trading us. The way to do it is to uh, is to let us know that, and we will give you some virtual Bitcoin as to showing you our value of face to face non virtual communication. Almost as valuable as Bitcoin. It's just an altcoin that you haven't maybe heard of unless you hear us talking about it at the end of every show. It's Nep called Nepcoin. Right. So you can do that. It's just like Bitcoin, though. Same principle. It's made out of bits of Bitcoin. It is former Bitcoin that has been yep. destroyed and sacrificed that's, to the emu. That's the next step. We can that's 3D true. print Mepcoin. We can 3D print it as an emu. That would be the next step. Like, there's no, your actual. No, it will not lose value. We will not 3D print it. We will only 3D print ourselves and send them to you. <laughs> but not right away if you're not ready for that. So if you're not ready for that, let that step. be a deterrent to contacting us. <laughs> Yeah. If you like what you've seen and heard, definitely check us out at the MEP Report and let us know if you would like us to be 3D printed in your home so we too can become Larry King on Russia Today or something. Uh, say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, Raisins. No right. more Raisins. Yeah. Oh, raisins. Send Richard Markan directed Return of the Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> no one remembers him. <laughs> well, the last time I saw old man emu, he was chasing a female he knew and better did da 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 As he shot past I heard him say She can't fly but I'm telling you She can run the pits of a kangaroo but I don't She can't fly but I'm telling you She can run the pits of a kangaroo Well, there is a moral to this ditty, um, better did da da da. Frost can sing, but he ain't pretty, um, better did da da da. Duck can swim, but he can't sing, nor can the eagle on the wing. Emu can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can round the pits on the kangaroo. Well, the kookaburra laughed and he said, It's true, um, better did da da da. Ah!